Hi folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. The times get tougher even if they don't. Today is August 5th, 2013, and this is episode 1179 of the Survival Podcast. And that's a Monday show, so this is a listener feedback show. I'll be uh, answering a lot of your questions, comments, and concerns via email. The way you send me an email for a show like this is put question for Jack, comment for Jack, article for Jack, something like that in the subject line. Send that email to jack at com, and please make your point or ask your question in one to two sentences. If you have a link, provide that next, and if you have any additional details, provide that after that. That will get you much more likely to get through my screening process and end up with your email, question, call, concern, whatever on the show. Uh, with the volume of email I get, that is the way that I'm able to screen email very, very quickly and deal with the hundreds of legitimate emails on addition to the hundreds of illegitimate emails that come in every day. Before I get into uh, today's questions, comments, and concerns, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsor. Sponsor of the day number one today is Backyard Food Production. If you uh, want to learn how to turn your backyard into a food production machine, Marjorie Wildcraft will show you. How to do that with uh, her DVD series, Growing Your Groceries. It's a great explanation of how they run their very uh, self-sufficient homestead down in Central Texas, along with a great bonus uh, CD that has a tremendous number of resources, and that CD is probably worth the price of the DVD uh, alone by itself. So uh, check her out today, backyardfoodproduction.com. Next up today, Fortress Defense Consultants. I often talk about what I call the triangle of operator capability when it comes to shooting. There's three things we need in a shooter for that shooter to be effective, whether they're putting a deer in the freezer or defending their family from somebody dangerous. And those three things are, number one, the gun. You, if you don't have a gun, you can be the greatest shooter, best trained person in the world, but it doesn't matter because you don't have a gun. doesn't mean you don't have any options, but you're not going to be a shooter because you ain't got a gun. Got that. Number two in that triangle on the other bottom corner is ammo. If you do not have ammo, effective, reliable, safe ammo, Then you have an empty gun, which other than maybe you can scare somebody with it who's dumb enough to believe that it's loaded when it ain't, you don't really have much. You've got an overpriced club. You can have the gun and the ammo, though, but the operator is the linchpin. That goes to the top of the triangle. It holds the whole thing together. And you need to have training to make that final juncture. And when you are in a, a, a situation, a crisis, you do not default to your best. You default to your lowest. Whatever your lowest level of training is where you're going to default to. So you want to make that high. The way you do that is take professional training. One of the best places you can do that is Fortress Defense Consultants. And Frank Sharp Jr. and his cadre of professional instructors will make sure you have a great experience and gain a lot of knowledge. If you can't travel to Indiana where Frank's school is, Frank can travel to you if you put together a small group. So you might want to get in touch with him on that. What can you learn from Frank? Basic handgun, basic rifle, basic shotgun, all that stuff, advanced classes, advanced ta tactics, uh, bringing the medical components in. Sh uh, classes are specifically set up for female shooters to address certain needs and concerns that women have when they're learning to shoot for the first time. It is a great place to go, and every bit of feedback I've ever gotten has been exceptional. So check them out today, FortressDefense.com. Next up, I want to remind you guys about the Walking to Freedom Forum. Uh, that forum's rocking. If you've sent me an email about being a moderator and haven't heard back from me, send it to me again. Um, in the beginning, there were some people sending me some really weird emails that I kind of picked on. You might think because I mentioned that that I uh, 
that I was picking on you and ignored your email. There's probably been some that have come through in the last week or two about being a moderator that I didn't get to and they got you know kind of left behind. So if you want to be a moderator for one of the uh, the state level boards or if you want to be a moderator for the whole forum, we need as much help over there as we can get. Uh, let me know. Just email me. Please tell me your form username, though, when you do, and what you want to do. Either I want to be a global moderator for the whole forum, or I want to moderate the Alabama board, or whatever it is you want to do. Be specific so that I can quickly address you, and I don't have to do a bunch of follow-up questions. Uh, but yeah, check out Walking to Freedom if you haven't done so already. It's pretty awesome what's going on over there. We're starting to get some goodbye letters. Those of you that are leaving your state, please compose your goodbye letters. I honestly am waiting to make kind of a big PR public relations push with the site until there's more stuff in the boards uh, for like Illinois and New Jersey of people leaving. I'd like to see at least a letter or two in, in most of those boards, and I'd like to see a little more activity before we uh, go really open to the public with this thing so that when we get some newspaper reporters and stuff like that coming in, there's something for them to see. So that's why I've been holding back on that one a little bit. Uh, but come hell or high water, I'd say by September it is what it is, and we'll go with the big PR push. I just don't think we're far enough along yet, so you can help. And remember, if you're not moving, you can still help. Just get in there and help people who are looking at your state. Talk about what's great about your state, why you like being there, and be honest about what you don't like about your state. That'll help people find the right home for them. And what we're trying to do with Walking to Freedom is teach people a simple lesson. It's easier to make some new friends and rent a truck than it is to continue to live in oppression states that don't really care about your liberty. Last but not least, do consider uh, joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you get exclusive content available only to members, and you help support the show at a whopping 18.3 cents per episode. That's all I'm going to say about that today. I want to get right into the, the meat of today. And I have to start out with a subject I'm really a little bit tired of talking about, but I need to talk about it right now. And uh, if you're listening to this, I've probably sent you, if you, you know, you're not just listening to it because you're listening to the whole show, but if you're listening to this from an email, you may have got an email that said, everything that I have to say on Mulligan Mint up till now it starts at whatever the timestamp is that it starts at in today's episode, because I need to do this all in one place because it's sucking the energy and the life rate out of me. Um, Mulligan Mint has been under attack. Mulligan Mint has done some things very, very right, and they've made some mistakes over over the year as well, and... Uh, they've also been attacked by somebody who I consider, well, if you don't like vulgarity, you might want to skip this, a vehement little piece of shit, Mr. Chris Dwayne. Um, Chris has been very insulting and derogatory toward me, well, where I've only really spoken about him once or twice during this whole thing, and has called me the Baghdad Bob of the Silver World and other nonsensical crap. Let me tell you this, if I were Rob Gray, Chris Dwayne would have broken legs by now at a minimum. That's not a threat, that's, that's just a statement of fact. If I were Rob, Chris... You'd be, at best, walking with a limp right now. Um, the campaign, the smear campaign that Chris has run against Rob has been effective. And if you don't know what I'm talking about and you don't deal with Mulligan Mint and Silver, then you may not even want to listen to this segment of today's show. Um, but for those that are concerned, you know all about the history. And what Chris has done is woven a very clever, I will give him that, smear campaign uh, composed of half-truths, outright lies, and total truths, mixed together in such a way that everything becomes blurry. And he's been very, very effective at damaging Rob and David Gray's business. And he's done this because he's a, he's a snidely little prick, he really is, um, who probably never did anything of any real consequence in his life up until he built his little online kingdom, and then found out that he could be told no, and that not everybody would just bow down to his little fiefdom, and went on this quest to destroy Rob and David Gray. 
And I'm not going to tell you that he won't eventually be successful. I don't know. I really don't know what the outcome of all this is going to be. What I'm about to tell you is everything that I understand and everything that I've done to protect you, my listeners, who have bought silver from me. And if you've already bought and already got it delivered, there's nothing for me to do. There's no concern, right? I just want you to understand that. If you've bought silver from TSP Mint or now it goes redirects to coin and cause, and you've already paid and your silver's come to you, There's the, everybody that's there, okay, that doesn't have a pending order, there's nothing to worry about unless you're going to order more. I'm going to get to that next. But just, I've heard from a lot of, I bought silver and I got it and I don't know what to do now. You have your silver. Relax. Have a homebrew. It's done. Okay? Next up is people that are concerned, should I order in the future? I've been in contact with Rob at least every other day for the past month about what's going on with one concern. Again, making sure no one that buys from me or through me loses a damn penny. And this is the commitment that I have from Rob. I will not cash a check of an order that I cannot fill. That's as much as I can ask for from the man. Um, I also have several of you guys that have silver on consignment with him through his lease program. Um, I have... Explain to Rob that if any of you guys lose your investment, uh, Rob will walk with a limp. Rob will walk with a limp, friend or not. That it is, is absolutely critical to me that anybody that has put up any type of wealth with Rob uh, make sure that those people are taken care of. If this thing does eventually, uh, if, if Mulligan Mint does eventually come down on the losing side of the lawsuit, there are two lawsuits pending. There's one from Chris, Chris Dwayne. It is a joke. No one's taking it seriously, including the courts. Chris has about as much chance of getting his lawsuit to go anywhere as a freaking butterfly does of flying through the flames of an atomic blast. Um, it's, it's, it's completely ridiculous. If you actually know the facts and you read it, it's laughable. And his lawsuit is not a factor. There's another lawsuit from Republic Metals. And Chris has totally mischaracterized what's gone on here. Um, Republic Metals and Rob and David Gray have been working with lines of credit between each other for over five years. The owner of Republic, Medi Medi Republic Metals recently just died at a conference, I believe while speaking, like dropped over dead and died. A new owner took over. This owner was hit, along with his board, by a, an onslaught of emails from Chris and his cronies saying that the Grays were stealing their silver. This guy got freaked out, decided to completely call in Mulligan Mint's line of credit in one fell swoop after five years of having this revolving line of credit between the Grays and Republic. Yes, the revolving line of credit between Mulligan Mint and Republic is new because Mulligan Mint is new, but the relationship between the Grays and Republic is over five years old. And there's never been a problem there ever until now. I want you to think about it this way. How would you handle it if, if your bank showed up and said, we'd like to call in your mortgage? That's, that's really the best way to understand what's gone on here. Can I say that they had, you know, you know, Rob and David haven't made any mistakes with this and letting themselves get into this type of predicament? No. Uh, I've actually kind of been pretty tough on Rob about that in our meetings and discussed some options with him that I basically said no to because I didn't feel that they had made smart enough business decisions, right? But these are business decisions, not an attempt to defraud any way, anybody the way Chris has made it out. So, What has happened now, and this is the most current truthful update, is that the Grays have made a motion successfully to remove 
the complaint from state court to federal court, and at the size of the uh, the, the dispute, it definitely qualifies for that, and that's been awarded. It's now in federal court. Things move a lot slower there. Rob and David, to my understanding, have made an offer to Republic Metals for 100% of the total due back by year's end that both parties agree to, okay? So by January 1, 2014, Rob and David have offered, we'll give you a judgment that that date is the drop-dead date that you have to be repaid. Republic has so far not accepted that. If they have any brains, they will, because it will take them longer than that to get through this process and possibly end up with nothing rather than a full judgment, which they've, again, they've been offered that. This is, this is actually important that people understand the facts here. Now, what Chris has said many times with his, his slander, Mulligan mints out of business. And then I go down there and talk to Rob, and we film a little bit of what's going on. Not a direct response to Chris, by the way. Chris, you're not that important. But, hey, you know what? I got people saying, hey, the mint's not in operation. Really? Okay, here it is. I lost my money, and I'm never going to get my silver now because of you. And I go down there, and I, I've said to one guy who said it like 40 times, I don't even believe he really had an order. He was all over the place with it. I said, send me a copy of your order. I will take it and hand it to Rob. I'll put it on film right in front of you. Never got anything from him. Never got a damn thing from that guy. Um, but stopped hearing the claim that he didn't get his silver and lost his money, etc. So, to my knowledge... Every single person who's ordered through my site, except for the past couple weeks, and there is the time of delivery in there, but everybody up to that, you know, that's, that's ordered, has been fulfilled. Every order that went through tspmint.com before we moved over to Coins for the Cause has been fulfilled. I know that. I went down there and verified it myself personally. So not a single one of my customers has lost a penny. They maybe have been inconvenienced, with long delays in shipping. They may have been inconvenienced with some pro improper packaging here and there that I've gotten very upset about with, with Rob and David and said, you need to fix this crap. But no one's lost a penny. Okay? So, and my concern is to make sure that it stays that way. And I am watching this to the best of my ability. And at any point that I feel this is in danger of really being shut down, I will come out publicly and tell my listeners, I wouldn't order now. Not because I don't trust Rob, but because there's too much risk of Rob losing the fight right now and losing it at a time in which it could affect you. So I will do that if I ever feel that exchange. We are not there yet. What I'm doing, and very few people have the stones to do, is standing by a business partner and a friend of over five years who has never let me down. I want to say that again. Rob Gray, in over five years of our friendship, relationship, and business practices together, has never let me down. Should I say that one more time? Five years of my relationship and business relationship with Rob Gray, he has never let me down once. Not one time. Now, anybody else can say anything they want, but I have to judge my relationship with my partners and my friends on how they treat me. Okay? I want to say this too. I am not in the silver business to make a bunch of money as has been accused and patting my pockets, etc. Silver is important to me because it's important to my audience, and I'm in business with Rob for the purpose of delivering something the audience has asked for, TSP-themed silver and fractional silver that's coming very soon. I'm doing this because I want my audience to have what they're asking me for, and I make a very small profit in return for doing it. On that note, these claims that Rob won't pay people are nonsense. I've been paid 
most of what I'm owed. I am not in cons concerned really with pulling everything that I have coming to me out right now during this time of attack, but I've been paid most of what I've owed. I've never actually asked to be paid. Rob drove over here and brought it to me without me asking him once, and I went down there to meet him about something totally different at another time where he handed me over 500 ounces of silver that I had earned. So this crap that Rob doesn't pay his bills, it's also crap. It's bullshit, right? I mean, and people that are in business in a partnership agreement need to understand that you can't always just have what you want when you decide you want it, that as a partner in a business, there's cash flow issues, and it's up to you to step up and be part of the things that are necessary to keep the cash flow in a positive direction. That's what I've been willing to do, and, and I've been willing to do more than I've been asked. That, that's all I can say on that. There are at least I know of three people, I don't know how many more there might be, that have some silver lease to rob. I have made sure that you won't get screwed. That's all I can say on that for now. I have made sure of it. I've done everything humanly possible to be sure of that. Um, so I want to talk about two things right now. Number one, could Mulligan Mint lose? And number two, what does that mean? Could they lose this battle? The answer is yes. There is no guarantee that Mulligan won't lose. Um, but what that means, part two of that is, there's there's a lot of people out there, that look, I call you guys Chris D-bags, um, that think that means Chris is right. History is full of times when the person that won wasn't the person that was right. If Mulligan Mint loses, it means that Chris's smear campaign was effective. Now, what happens if that day comes? If you get to the point where you're at the end of your rope, you're going to lose, you know you're going to lose, what do you do? I can't speak with any knowledge about a pending lawsuit. All I can tell you is what I would do. And I'm going to tell you that I think Rob's at least as smart as I am. If I got to that point, then I would file bankruptcy. I would file bankruptcy protection. And then I would make sure that I took care of all my partners, investors, and business people the way that that protection gives me time to do. And then, then you're subject to creditors. They come last. Okay, so investors and customers in a bankruptcy come first, and creditors come second. And there's always that nuclear option. And that would be sounded as a huge victory by Chris Duane, but in the end, he would probably get nothing of anything that he's asking for. And honestly, if he quit his shit, he'd probably get something. Um, he'd probably get a settlement. I'm pretty sure that the Grays are equitable to a reasonable settlement with Chris uh, over some commissions that would be the only thing at play that probably is due Chris. So I'm sure he could get that if he would put his pride aside. But he's, his pride is more important than, than reality, I guess. Republic Metals, on the other hand, has the opportunity to recoup 100% of what, what you know the line of credit is, plain and simple. And the Grays are willing to step up and say, that's what's owed, and here's how we're going to pay it back. And it's up to Republic to either accept that or not. But if their attorneys have any brains, they know what I've just told you. And they know they can push this right up to the end, and they know that all that, 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 that Mulligan would have to do is just file bankruptcy protection. At that point, they and any other creditor would go to the back of the line. And I really hope that day doesn't come. But I can't tell you that it won't. All that I can tell you is I've been on this like white on rice and have done everything I can to ensure the safety for my listeners who are involved with Mulligan in any way due to my recommendation. That is all I can do. What would I say to a person right now who said, you know what, um, 
I, I don't feel comfortable ordering from Mulligan right now. I'd say, okay, trust your gut. Fine. And a person that says, well, I, I want to, I would say, then do it. Then do it. And understand the situation as I've just outlined it. Because the situation I've just outlined, outlined is the actual situation. Now, let me say this. The sorry-ass little Chris D-bag will probably take the words I've used here and merge them into some sort of a video or some crap like that and take only certain parts of it out and mischaracterize what I've said. Chris, if you're that much of a piece of shit, go ahead and do it because anybody that wants to hear the whole thing can come here and do that. I haven't misled anybody. Chris, I've made a few mistakes in my life. Let me tell you one of the biggest mistakes I've ever made. Trusting you and introducing you to Rob and David Gray. If I could go back in history and when somebody brought you to my attention, say, that guy's an ass and have had nothing to do with you and have never brought you into touch with the Grays, I would do it in a heartbeat. You're really pathetic, man. You're really pathetic. The whole way this was handled was completely improper. In fact, let me put it to you this way. Do you know who handled it? professionally, Republic Medals. Did some really stupid shit, too, that, frankly, if I were Rob, I'd be suing Republic over. But, you know, you don't see them with all of this smear campaign shit on the front of their website. What you've done is totally unprofessional. And the, anybody that's working with you now is a fool because they should see the template for what you'll do if you ever have a big disagreement with them. This is exactly how you'll treat any other partner that ever doesn't give you what you want. A vicious smear campaign. And anybody that deals with you now should realize that. And your lawyer, your lawyer must be a complete fool. Because if I were your attorney, Chris, what I would have told you, what I would have told you is take all that shit down while we're doing this lawsuit. And if you would have said, it's all true, I would have said, I don't even care. I don't even care. It weakens our position. And that's the facts. And the fact that you continue to do this while you're pursuing a lawsuit tells me you're not worried about the lawsuit. What it seems to me that you're doing is trying to destroy another man. And that pretty much, Chris, goes against everything you've talked about in all your years of building up your brand on the Internet, destroying another person because you think you can. Let me tell you something, Chris. I don't know how this whole battle will play out. But I know in the end, Rob and David will still be around. They'll still be in the silver and gold business. And you can go back to pretending that you're relevant. With that, I'm done. This is I don't want to talk about this anymore. And until something actually changes, I am done with my discussions on Mulligan Mint. And I'd like to now get to your questions, get back to doing what I really want to do, help you guys live a better life. I've done all I can here. There's nothing else for me to say. As such, I'm going to take Joseph's question here that's completely and totally away from this to get clean of this nastiness for the rest of the episode. Um, this comes from Joseph. Joseph says, Jack, what are your thoughts on small-scale urban vegetable gardening for profit? More specifically, what are your thoughts on how to sell the product? Joseph, that's a great question, and, and I'll tell you why. It's the second part. What are your thoughts on how to sell the product? It's more important than how to grow, to, to grow the product. Um, you know, your best vegetables for market, like you're talking about, small scale, are probably salad vegetables and herbs. I think you're on the right track with that concept. Um, but how to sell is a problem. 
And, and here's the, the issue you'll run into. Most of your salad greens are fresh for a very short period of time. This is both an opportunity and a problem. And herbs the same way, except we have another thing we can do with herbs that I'll talk about in a second. Of course, that's to dry them. Uh, but fresh herbs actually have a much higher market value in many ways than dried herbs do. Uh, because you can get dried herbs anywhere, but fresh herbs are kind of unique. So the thing that you really have to do if you want to do this as a, as a, a source of income, is do a good job of planning what you can produce and where you can produce it and probably start producing less than you plan on initially. And you need to use the initial product to, to close business. So what I might do if I were you is find four or five local restaurants, for instance, that really kind of like to market to the upper middle class and above, that like to do salads and stuff like that, and ask if you can get a meeting with their chef. And take him a mix of fresh vegetables and herbs and say, this is what I can produce for you. I can't produce a thousand tons of it. I can produce X by the end of this month and Y by the end of next month. And I can ramp up production for you if you're interested in this. And you can have as much or as little as you want. And we can have it delivered to you every other day by the pound. How much do you want? And it'll change seasonally. And this is... This is my plans for how it'll change seasonally, and you can market this salad as locally produced and organically grown and, and all the things that you want to do with it, and it'll be the freshest stuff you can get. It'll be freshest, fresher than any supplier because it will have been shipped nowhere except from my place to your place. That would be one avenue. Selling at farmer's markets and all with greens is a lot harder because whatever you don't sell that day, you're going to have problems you know, with what do you do with it? If you're doing tomatoes and peppers and things, you can can them, you can dehydrate them, you can do so many other things with them. But greens, while being one of the most premium things you can grow as far as return of investment standpoint, kind of fade away after that. So you really have to think about it. Another way you might be able to do that then is through a small-scale CSA or community-supported agriculture. This would be where you do a projection of what you can grow, Decide how many customers you could serve with that and go out and basically have people purchase this stuff in advance and they come by once a week and pick it up. Or if it's on a neighborhood scale, maybe you go by once a week and deliver it. That would be another way that you could do that. With herbs, you could very conceivably go into the business of selling fresh herbs and then any that don't sell dry. Um, another thing you can look at with herbs is selling potted herbs which might be a great way to sell both pots that people would plant and pots that people would maintain as sort of a house plant and clip and use from as needed. Those would do well at farmer's markets. And by being potted, you wouldn't have the end-of-day misery when you, you, know, you didn't sell as much as you thought you would. You really want to test your markets first before you become too invested in it. And I can tell you that some of the best money to be made in growing your own on a small scale right now is not in selling finished product, but selling you know partially started product. And what I mean by that are plants and things like that. So you can make a lot more money right now by selling tomato plants than selling tomatoes. Uh, tomato plants easily sell for a dollar a plant. Uh, you buy a hundred tomato seeds for a dollar, and you end up with a hundred dollars worth of plants. Doesn't always work out that cleanly, but you know you kind of get my point there. So that would be another thing to look at is selling plants and starts and things like that. You can also look at going in and finding some really cool vegetables uh, or, or what have you. Anything that you can save seed from that's in short supply and hard to find, and it really has kind of a burgeoning new market. And specialize in growing that and make a deal with a catalog company to sell them seed. 
there's more money in selling seed in many instances than the end product as well because you get so much seed out of a single yield. And if you get less seed out of a yield than you know, something that has a small seed yield, then usually the price per pound of seed is much higher. So those are some other ways that you can look at, at doing this. I would tell you, though, start off by growing for yourself, fresh herbs and salad and vegetables for yourself. When you're producing more than you can use, now you've kind of perfected your craft to a point you have something to go out and, and market with. But I think the easiest market for, for anybody with a, you know, a town or city of any size with a good restaurant uh, district or anything like that is direct to the restaurant. Um, because chefs take a dollar's worth of salad greens and turn it into a $12 salad and sell it to people that will pay $12 for a salad that don't understand that it was probably grown by the guy on the other side of the fence from them. And they're happy because they're yuppies and that's what they want to do. And one of the things you have to do when you're marketing something is find the people that want to buy what you have to sell. And sometimes you'll find that the end consumer is removed enough from you they don't want to deal directly with you. So that yuppie that drives a Lexus SUV and goes to a restaurant and orders a $12.50 you know, salad with, with chicken or dressing on the side or whatever they want um, probably wouldn't buy it from you if you came up to their front door with it in a bag. But they'll buy it from the chef who buys it from you in a bag. And it's important to understand when it makes sense to go with the direct model and when it makes step to go with what's called a two-step distribution model. Most people in agriculture, are at minimum, are at a three-step and many at a four-step. And that's just how many steps does it take before the product gets to the consumer. And I'm talking fresh vegetables, not processed, because then a whole new layer of steps, right? But what I mean by that is most people sell to a wholesaler, the wholesaler sells to a retailer, the retailer sells to a customer. And many times it's a four-step because it's a wholesaler selling to a wholesale distributor who sells to a vendor like a restaurant who then sells to a customer. And you generally want to get as close to the customer as you can in that distribution model, but it's not always best to be directly to the customer. Is there someone that can do a value add between you and the customer and allow you and that partner to both have a higher profit margin? That's when it makes sense to put a step in the distribution channel. Because unlike you, that restaurant owner and that head chef have people coming in with open wallets every day asking to buy food. So they have a ready customer base. You're now providing an ingredient that they can use. And by the way, at little to no risk, because you can say, hey, test it. See if your people like it. You know, See if it's a hit for you. And if it is, then I can sell you a pound or two pounds or four pounds, however much you need this week. I would just like some level of forecasting. They'll be happy to do that for you. And that's one great way to kind of turn that into a business. There is another way, though. There's a totally different way to do this, like through the farmer's market and, and shop selling and stuff, and that's to be your own value add. If you want to do that, there's some cool things you can do. There's a gal I met. I don't remember her name, but she has some really cool stuff, and she has a permanent booth at the Arlington Farmer's Market. She's been listening to TSP for a very long time, and I met her at the Arlington Self-Reliance Expo. And she gave me some awesome chili beer salsa and some amaranth tortillas and stuff like that. And she can't grow or produce enough stuff that everything she sells she can make from scratch from her own stuff. But she tries to get something that she produces locally into every product that she creates and tries to get as much as she can from local businesses and all organic and all that good stuff. 
So instead of selling amaranth, which sells for a couple dollars a pound, and you know you have to wait till the end of the year to get your yield, and you only got so much land to work on because you're in the suburbs and that, she grows lots and lots of amaranth until it gets you know a couple feet tall, and then cuts it down, and then dehydrates the leaves and grows more and grows more and grows more, and just lets some go to seed every year, so it's sustainable, and you can grow so much amaranth so fast takes those dehydrated amaranth leaves that are hugely nutritious, high in protein, and add a lot of really great flavor, and puts those into her tortilla, where, yeah, she didn't grow the wheat and grind the flour, but now you've got a value-added product and sells that. So that's another model that a small grower can do, is set up with the intent, I am going to market this line of products that are canned or frozen or baked or whatever it is, and I'm going to try to grow the stuff so that I can market, go to market and say, at least one ingredient, And every product I sell was grown in my own backyard. Everything else in, in there, I've done everything I can to deal first with local businesses, and then, only then, will I buy an organically sourced product from outside the area. And that's a very strong marketing message to people that want locally grown food and have a hard time finding it. It also allows you to do things that are much more shelf-stable in your inventory. A tortilla easily, you know, kept refrigerated will last a week, still be fresh enough to sell. A jar of canned salsa will last a year and still be able to be sold. And that way you can make enough to put your inventory in place and gauge your market and start to build a funnel and sell into it. And if you're really smart, you build a brand around that and eventually instead of just selling directly to the consumer, again, now we start looking Where can I go into a two-step distribution agreement where I've brought the value add to the retailer? And you start looking for small shops and things like that that you can get your product into. And, and take it in and say, hey, just try it. Just try it. Hey, can we do this? Can I leave a case with you today? We'll agree on the price you're going to sell it on. We'll agree on the price you can take. I'll give you two jars of it. We'll dump it here in the bowl and let people that are in your, your shop sample it. Can we try that? A shop owner that says no to that either does not have the authority to say yes because they're not really the owner, or they're stupid. So find somebody else. That model is very solid, and I think it can lead to a sustainable income a lot quicker than trying to just sell peppers and tomatoes at a farmer's market. That's the best I can do with that one. Let's go on to another question. Here's another uh, good question. Uh, again, taking us even in a totally different direction from, uh, from the last one. And I, I like that when we get to move around a lot with a feedback show. Um, Uh, Rich says, can you discuss the differences and benefits or advantages between center fire rounds and rim fire rifles? I've been making my way through your early shows and heard you discuss the two styles, but I'm not sure I've heard why one would want one or the other or both. Thanks, Rich. Rich, that really could be a whole show. So let me try to condense the basics of it down to, you know, a five minute answer. Uh, a center fire is exactly what it sounds like. You have a cartridge full of powder and you have a primer in the center of the base of that cartridge and a bullet holding in the powder, and when you pull the trigger, a center fire pin strikes that primer, ignites it, which then ignites the gunpowder, builds up pressure, and sends the bullet downrange. So that's center fire. It's exactly what it sounds like. Rim fire, there is no primer per se as a component. It's just a thing that's, that's put on the inside of the, the, the casing. So instead of there actually being a little primer full of a priming compound that you shove in there and you can remove, okay, a rim fire just has a flat face to the cartridge. And around the rim is primer, like a paste-like primer compound. 
and then the powder goes in, and then the bullet goes in, and then you put that into a rifle or a handgun, and when you pull the trigger, the firing pin strikes the rim, hence rim fire, ignites that priming compound, sends a bullet downrange. That, that's, that's what they are in essence. In the very beginning, there were no center fires. The first thing that was actually created as a cartridge was a rim fire. And there were, you know, 40 caliber rim fires back in the, in the 1800s as people started trying to build a rifle that would, the, the, the goal here was to be self-contained, able to load a single round and fire it and eventually be able to fire it multiple times. That's what led us from patch and ball and, and mini ball muskets and, 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 and front stuffer rifles to cartridges. The desire to be able to not sit there and pour powder and then ram in a wadding and then ram in a bullet and then pull it back and use a percussion cap or a flint and a, a flint and an and, and FFG and, and smoke comes out and then we got to do it all again. You know, and it takes a long time to load, load the weapon each time. So we wanted this cartridge we could put in. So the initial solution was we can do a rimfire. Because it was pretty easy to build a cartridge case once the idea got in somebody's head, hey, it could be like this. It actually started out with paper cartridges, but we won't go into that. Maybe we'll do a show on this and go through the whole progression. It might be interesting and fun. So along came somebody who said, hey, wait a minute. If, if that primer thing was a removable component, then that brass piece that, that holds this whole thing together that's the most expensive thing to produce could be reloaded. So entered the center fire primer, and pretty much everything went to center fire except 22s. There's some other weird rim fires out there, old ones and new ones rehabilitated, etc. But the 22 stuck around. I'll talk about why in just a second. But center fire took over. It became, you know, and you get center fires down to 17 and lower caliber today, and all the way up to I just saw some crazy 95 caliber freaking rifle that. JD 995 something JDDA or something, which basically is like shooting a single shot of a 20 millimeter uh, uh, cannon and everything in between. Guns from elephants to, to varmints and, and everything in between is available in center fire. The main reason you would want to center fire is most cartridges of any significant power are center fire, including in handguns. There's not, 22 is a deadly little thing, but it's not really a great carry gun. It's really not what you should be carrying for self-defense. It's not really what you should be shooting a deer with. Okay. Not that you couldn't do it, but really it's not optimized for it. So your center fire has two main advantages. One, it has a lot more choices and a lot more power. And two, it can be reloaded if you want to get into reloading. Once you fire 22 brass, you're done. There's probably some little arts and things you can do with it. And there are some systems out there that let people basically cut the end off and use it to make a jacket for 223 to shoot out of like an AR. But that's getting pretty specialized, and it's repurposing, not reloading. Why did the 22 stick around? Because it's just so damn economical to make and so perfect for what it is. And the reason you'd want a 22 rimfire is to train new shooters with a very low recoil, low report weapon that won't make them flinch or develop bad habits, and to shoot small game. If you take even, like the closest thing you could get to a 22 rimfire would be something like a 22 Hornet, which is a little center fire, a little bit hotter than a 22 Magnum. Unless you purposely load that thing down, it will blow the shit out of a squirrel till there's almost nothing left to it. Even the 22 Hornet, which is about as small as you're going to go with a rim fire in 22 class. Or, I mean, with center fire in a 22 class. If you shoot a squirrel in the head with a 22 long rifle, it just falls over and dies, and there's plenty of stuff left. It's so perfect for what it is. And up until this ammo shortage, the other advantage has been economics. 
Um, it's not that long ago that you could still go buy a brick of 522 rounds for about 14 bucks. I believe those days will return hopefully soon. Right now, 22 long rifle ammo is in great shortage, but it's just a perfect little round, and it's why everything else went center fire, but the 22 stayed rimfire because it was so economical to manufacture that nobody even really cared that you couldn't reload it. And as soon as you went up into a center fire, you went to a level of power that just was beyond what the 22 was designed to do. And there's really nothing else out there that can do what the 22 can do. There's And there's different flavors of 22, if you want to call it. There's a 22 short, there's a 22 long, a 22 long rifle. And uh, most people use a long rifle. I won't get into the specifics about them. And then there are the magnum rimfires, right? So there's a 22 magnum rimfire. But there's also a 17 magnum rimfire, which is basically a neck down 22 magnum. Uh, and there's, there's some other flavors of that, but that's kind of beyond the scope of this. Those are specialized rounds. Uh, they're fast, they're flatter shooting, and they allow the rimfire to do things that up until they were invented only center fires could do. But they're, they're specialized for small varmint hunting, basically. They, to me, they do too much damage to be really a good game getter. I've seen even the 17H, H2 or whatever is a little one. Uh, a guy shot a squirrel with that I saw and like the ribs were exploded out of it and all. It was just too much damage. Uh, so they're more of a, a varmint killing tool or a great target shooting tool. But chief advantages of the rimfire, low recoil, great training tool, great small game hunting implement, and you can carry a ton of ammo in a very small space. A 50 round box of 22 long rifle um, is pretty small, fits in your pocket, you'll forget that it's there until you need it. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and take another question today. Uh, this next question comes from Drew. And it's something that comes up a lot whenever we talk about paleo diet. And we had an interview with someone on that diet last week uh, that was a great interview, I thought. And it's something I, I've been living this way. And I say I'm 90% paleo 90% of the time, uh, which is about as good as I think I need to be to stay healthy. And it's worked very well for me. So I'm a very big fan of, the, of this. Met. It's a lifestyle. It's not. I don't like calling it a diet. Anyway, here's what Drew's question is. What negative role does dairy milk play in a paleo diet? Uh, would raw milk from a pastured cow be okay? I live in a great dairy state of Wisconsin and have grown up on a dairy farm my whole life. I'm interested in the paleo diet and would not be far from it now other than flour and dairy. I think my family and I could transition to it easily enough except for the fact that I have my own cow uh, that I milk by hand. My wife makes cheese from. I'm well aware of commercial milk is empty of real benefits, but raw form has many health benefits. Please explain why it would be best to sell my cow and give up raw milk for paleo. Thanks a lot, Drew. It wouldn't. You don't need to get rid of your cow. As far as I'm concerned, dairy is paleo. <gasps> Did he say that? But Rob Wolf says, I don't care what Rob Wolf says. There's plenty of people that, that advocate basically a paleo lifestyle that say that cheese and milk, etc. is is good. And there's plenty that say it's bad. And, and here's the facts. Every morning into my coffee, I pour whole cream. Yes, cream. Not milk cream. It's yummy. I like it. And I've still lost weight. It's pure fat. Cheese is wonderful. It's absolutely wonderful. Now, here's what I think happens. A lot of people that come to paleo, especially people that are really vocal about it, because it's done so much for them, were sick before they got on paleo. They weren't just fat. They were sick. And many of them come from a place of being extremely gluten intolerant and having celiac disease. 
and never knew what that was. And the gluten removal alone has done massive amounts of health benefit for them. And that's fine for them, but that doesn't mean that everybody else has to be afraid of you know a little gluten here or a little gluten there that might be in a bean or something like that, right? It just means it shouldn't make up the majority of your diet. It should be an eat in moderation if it's got gluten in it, okay? But a lot of people, because it's done so much for them, feel like, well, all gluten must go, all gluten is bad, this is a purist uh, mentality. And, and to be fair, Rob does not take that stance because he basically says, like, I can't eat that, but you should do so if you choose to in moderation. And then people take that as don't eat that. Well, he doesn't eat it. Well, he's got celiacs, all right? It's a very detrimental thing for him to eat any significant amount of gluten at any time and always will be because he's intolerant to it. Well, I also believe that many people that come from that sick place are lactose intolerant. And lactose intolerance is a lot like celiacs. There's not a you are or you aren't all the way or all the way not type of, of, of thing. And what I mean by that is if you're a type 1 diabetic, your body doesn't produce insulin and you are. And it's just the way it is. And it's not like, well, it produces a little bit today and not so much tomorrow and just what you need the next day and things like that. You have you, you, There's a clear-cut line in the sand. If you're a type 2 diabetic which means you've done it to yourself through diet, not only is it reversible, but your diet will have a direct impact on how well what's left of your system is functioning that day. So it's not a full boat one or the other. Celiacs, or gluten intolerance, and lactose intolerance are very much on that spectrum. There's people that can drink a cup of milk every day and they would have no problem. But if they went and they started eating yogurt, plus that cup of milk, plus a bunch of cheese, they start to have problems. And sometimes it's not the typical thing you see from lactose intolerance, lots of gas and, and bloating. Sometimes it's just not feeling quite right. Okay. Well, when they remove dairy, that goes away and they say, ah, dairy is bad. Not necessarily the case. Okay. So what I would tell you, you have your own cow, you make your own cheese, you make your own yogurt, and you're drinking whole milk, not skim milk, awesome. I would tell you if you're on paleo and you're like, well, I want some milk in my diet, Don't buy low-fat milk. Buy the closest thing to raw milk you can get and buy whole milk. The closest thing to true whole milk you can get, which any farmer that has their own cow and milks it by hand would tell you is not what you, when you buy milk in the store and it says whole milk, it ain't whole milk. All right? It ain't. It ain't real whole milk. There's still less uh, fat in there than there would be. This is why it's important to not remove fat. One, the fat is an incredibly great nutrient for you. It's great for everything you've been told about it is a lie. You, the people that trust the government about, you know, fat is bad, and then turn around and go, well, I don't trust the government about this, 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 this. It amazes me how there's so many people that don't trust the government on every single thing except this one thing. And it's not always the fat is bad. But most people out there have like this one thing. Well, you know, the government says, and we've been told this, and this is true, and there's independent studies, and I trust this. And you go, do you trust all these other things? Uh-uh. Well, then why do you trust this one thing? Right? Fat is good for you. If you can get that in your head, you'll first immediately stop wanting to get rid of it. But this is what you need to understand. There's really only four sources of calories. Okay? And there's really three that are in your diet on a daily basis. And those are carbohydrates, protein, and fat. There's nothing else other than alcohol, which your body process is totally different. I'm going to leave out of this discussion. I'm just going to say it so somebody doesn't go, you left out alcohol. It's not real. Yeah, I know. I'm just going to put that aside for right now. It's on the shelf. Beers are on the shelf. We're down to carbs, fat, and protein. If we reduce fat, 
and we're going to maintain a certain caloric intake, the only way we can do it is either through the greater consumption of protein or carbohydrate. And in most instances, when we reduce fat, the thing that gets put in to make up the difference is carbohydrate, and this completely screws up your blood sugar. Okay? This is a fact. Whether people want to accept it or not, I don't care. This is a medical and scientific known fact. When the body's insulin level in the blood goes above 18 microliters, with a typical American diet, you're there most of the day. No matter what you do, your body will not, cannot, and won't burn fat, even under caloric restriction. If your blood sugar is over 18 microliters and you're in caloric restriction, your body will begin to harvest its own protein. Because it chemically, it again, it chemically can not burn fat at that level. Now, eventually if you're on caloric restriction, the blood sugar will go below that, and then, yes, your body will harvest fat. But as long as you stay elevated above that 18 microliter, and in the average American diet, even what we're told is healthy, we stay there the majority of the day. And then you go, well, I don't understand. I'm eating what they say and I can't lose. That's that's the truth. So where does dairy fit in all this? To me, dairy is an animal product. And I'm done. I don't need anything else. right? If meat is good and fat is good and kidneys and liver are good and heart and cheek meat and tongue and all that's good, milk's good too. If eggs are good, dairy's good. Now, does that mean if you are a person with lactose intolerance, you should just eat until you're sick? No. I mean, you, we all have to find our own tolerance there. But I make no exclusion of dairy in living a paleo lifestyle. And I don't feel that makes me non-paleo. I guarantee you, if one of our hunter-gatherer ancestors had speared a wildebeest, and it was a wildebeest cow, and she was suckling and nursing, and when they went to cut that wildebeest up, found a, a paunch full of milk, they would have harvested that, and they would have consumed it. And I believe that hunting and gathering and dairy go back all the way to the root together. There's, there's no way that any of our ancestors wouldn't have figured that out very, very quickly and considered that part of what you harvest. And there's indigenous peoples today that if they kill an animal that turns out to be lactating, they certainly harvest the milk. So, And you can say, well, you don't kill them in the time of the year when they're raising their babies. Because, Yeah, well, this is, guys, we're, we're more than 10,000 years in the past. There was no game regulations and things like that back then. You killed something so you didn't starve to death. And if there was a baby with it and it was dumb enough to hang around after you killed mom, you killed the baby too. I know that sounds heartless. I'm just talking about how we got here. Anyway, that's my stance on that. Don't get rid of your cow. Enjoy your cow. Get rid of the get rid of the wheat especially. Stop using the flour and keep eating your cheese and yogurt. And Send me some yogurt, man. I love fresh yogurt. Uh, let's take another one. The next question is kind of related. Uh, it's actually directly related. Uh, Kevin asked me, what would you, what would you, what would, uh, would you please give me your opinion on the best book on living and eating a paleo lifestyle? And I'm going to give you a few books that I think are pretty good. I think Rob Wolf's The Paleo Solution is probably the best book from a scientific point, proving that one, yeah, this is how people ate until the dawn of agri uh, agriculture, and yeah, this is why it works biochemically. I, I think it's, it's outstanding for that, in spite of the facts that I do not agree with all of Rob's conclusions. I think Intro to Paleo um, by Abel James is a pretty dadgone good book as well. Um, I think that what's the other one I'm trying to think of uh, the paleo diet by Lauren Cordain I think is uh, is is pretty dadgone solid 
and um, Practical Paleo uh, by Diane Sniffle. I can't think of her name. Bill Staley and Rob Wolf all collaborated on that, and it's more on eating and, and, and meals that you can prepare and things like that. I think that's a, a pretty daggone uh, good one as well. There's tons of... Uh, recipes now for paleo and everything like that, if you want something like that. But those are probably the, the better books. I think if I was going to start with something, uh, I would start with the, the Paleo Solution by Rob Wolf. Again, even though I don't completely agree with all of his conclusions. But let me say something else. I think that maybe this is a place where you're better off without a book because of all of the things I've seen go wrong because people read a book. The problem is that when people read a book, they, they, they tend to, whether the author wanted it to happen or not, elevate the author to guru status. And if Rob Wolf says not to eat milk, uh, then you don't eat milk. And if, uh, if you listen to somebody else, who, you know, if you listen to Cordain and he says you can have milk, well then you can. And then you, you get up with this misconception, then this, this, this purist mentality. And, and I think Rob, the reason I like Rob's book the best is because he kind of acknowledges One, yeah, these are my limits at the time of writing this book and what I know so far and what's worked. And two, most of you are not going to be 100% on the plan anyway. And if you can get to 70 or 80% uh, most of the time or better, then you'll probably be a lot healthier than if you don't. And gives you that freedom to decide for yourself, you know, do I want to have a little bit of wheat? Do I want to say, well, you know what, you know, once a week I'm going to eat something with a couple tortillas and I'm just not going to miss it. Uh, and, and, and be fine with that. I mean, that's... That's what I like about Rob. Rob is also, if you listen to his podcast, evolved a lot over time and changed some of his hard stances on certain things and, and become more soft on them as things have been proven out. So this is what I would tell you. The best way to be paleo and to see if it works for you, just come up with a list of foods you're not going to eat and then do whatever you want otherwise and see how that works out for you. And the things I would tell you is if it's white, you probably shouldn't be eating it. So white potatoes, white rice, etc. And I would say even brown rice and whole grain rice and all, limit severely because it's still very, very high in carbohydrate. Um, if you're going to eat things like sweet potatoes, eat them in, in moderation. So understand that you have foods that are like, um, we don't eat this list, the moderation list, and eat all you want list. And pretty much if it used to have a face... It, it, and it's derived from something that had a face, and nothing that never had a face is part of it, you can eat all you want of it. So you can eat all the steak you want. And you can eat all the vegetables in general you want. Not tubers, but above-ground vegetables. You can pretty much eat all you want of those. If it's green or colorful, you can pretty much eat it. That's on the eat-like-crazy list. If it's a tuber, most likely it's on the eat-in-moderation list. People will point out things like, well, carrots are high in carbohydrate. Well, you know... Carrots are also very low in calories, right? If you eat enough carrots to get any significant amount of calories, you're not going to eat anything else. So carrots are on the go-ahead-and-eat-it list just because if you're eating it with other things, it's, it's inherently self-limiting. The best book I can actually recommend for paleo and to, and to sell yourself on the science has nothing to do with paleo, and it's from a guy that says paleo is not the way to go. Well, his book actually has convinced me that paleo is the way to go. And you can get it for free if you're an MSB member. It's over 500 pages. It sells for 30 bucks, and you get it free as an MSB member. It is called The Glycation Factor by Dr. Greg Ellis, who's been on the show. And if you start to learn about the process of glycation and the plaques that your body makes that are permanently and permanently damage your body when you're eating excess carbohydrate, that right there will put you, maybe not paleo, but on low-carb living for the rest of your life. And the research in that book is more than a hundred years of research assembled from researchers all over the world, 
fully and wholly documented. And what you read in the glycation factor as far as what happens to the body as it consumes large amounts of carbohydrates, regardless of their source, is incontrovertible. You cannot make a logical objection to any of it. You can disagree with the conclusions about what it means. But as far as the biochemical way that the body behaves, it's absolutely in stone. Okay, and I, I mean, that's why I love that book. That's why I negotiated with Dr. Ellis to get that book for free for all MSB members because I believe it will save people's lives. And if you, if you realize what's going on when your body is glycating, it, it'll do it for you. You'll be done. And you'll be done with the belief that gruel is good for you. What I want to finish up with before I go to something else totally off the paleo topic is what I think we really need to have an honest discussion about with people when they say that you know whole grain is good, wheat is good, rice is good, it must be good, we've been told it's good, is number one, you've been brainwashed. But number two, why? Why? Is it because everybody wants you dead and they want to make you sick? There's some people in the food industry that definitely want you sick because they also own pharmaceuticals, so they want you sick with food and then medicated with their drugs, which will make you more sick and they make lots of money. There are those people. But in general, the people that are setting these guidelines, dietitians, whether they're private or work for the government, they believe what they're telling you. And it's from thousands of years of this concept that, that grain is good for you. Where did this come from? This came from pharaohs and kings and noblemen and samurai, upper-class samurai and emperors, etc. across the board that wanted to eat meat and realized that they could only produce so much meat and have their little their kingdom or their fiefdom or their dukedom or whatever it was And they had to have a limit on how much meat they could produce because they had to feed all the minions. And they wanted to keep their minions alive. And from what they knew and understood at the time, there was no way that everybody could eat meat every day and have their little fiefdom exist. So they had to control the members of their fiefdom, all their little minions and what have you, and their slaves and their serfs. So they had to convince the serfs that, you know, leave the king's deer alone or we'll hang you. And the reason is the grain's good for you. So religious reasons were developed for, for being vegetarian or mostly vegetarian. Health reasons. Uh, kings would come out with proclamations to get people to eat. The king of France at one time put out a proclamation that he ate fried potatoes with his breakfast every day, even though we pretty much are pretty sure he didn't. But it was because the French would not accept the potato when it was brought over from the New World, and they knew it would feed them if they did. So they, they created this illusion that the king loved potatoes, so you should love potatoes too. This, this brainwashing is not this generation. It's millennia of this brainwashing because for you to control others, you have to keep them alive and fed. And the technology of the time meant, you know what, if we can put the surf out there and he cuts the grain with his sicket and then he scythes it and he keeps growing that grain, then he'll stay alive, he'll pay his taxes, he'll do what we want him to do, we can control him with the state, we can control him with the church, both together apparatuses, and we, the elite, can sit down and dine on pig and deer and ox every night. And that's the truth. And you can't have a discussion about nutrition and the beliefs that we have about the foods that we're supposedly supposed to be eating because they're good for us if we don't go look at the history and look at the honest truth. How did we get here? How did we come to believe that wheat was a great crop for human consumption? And then we have to have an honest discussion with there's two kinds of wheat. There's wheat that we grew up until about 50 years ago, and there's everything after that. 
and how much worse modern wheat is than old wheat. But wheat in of itself was never really a human food. And if you go back, in, there's the thing, if you go back into the paleo record, and you can look from evidence of sites and things like that, and not all paleo is 10,000 years and back. There's plenty of hunter-gatherers that were living that lifestyle with very little agriculture a thousand years ago. 500 years ago in some areas. It's only modern times that have... Some places 250 years ago, 200 years ago. Native Americans did a lot of agriculture, but were also largely hunter-gatherers. Some of the Native Americans were completely hunter-gatherers. You can talk all you want about Chinampas and Three Sisters Gardens and what have you, but the, the Native Americans that lived in the Midwest were primarily hunter-gatherers that lived on buffalo and deer and berries and fruits and nuts. Okay, So if we don't take that all into context, it, it gets very hard to accept the fact that this food is poisonous. And modern wheat is a toxin, and it's an opiate-related, addictive toxin that makes you eat more food. I'll post a link in today's show notes with a doctor explaining why that's the case. And if we accept that, then we say, well, okay, we have to do something about this. And what this all started with is, what book do I buy? And again, I think that books are great for learning and expanding your mind and selling yourself if you need that. But I think the reality is all we have to do is look at it this way. If I were a hunter-gatherer 10,000 years ago, what types of things would I have eaten? And they would be things that you could pick up and put in your mouth and eat with as little preparation as possible. And you would eat as much of that as you can. And when you found foods that weren't quite as appealing but stored well, they would become your survival rations. And what we've learned from looking at Paleolithic evidence is that, yes, Paleo people ate grains. Different types of grains in the in the New World, they ate amaranth and quinoa. And in the Old World, they ate the predecessors of modern sorghum and wheat. And they, they gathered it when it was available. But they stored it in little pouches and things like that. And it was for when they couldn't get what they preferred to eat. And that is how you would eat. And then just start eating that way. If it comes from something with a face... You can eat it. If it grows and you can pick it up and eat it in its raw form, you can eat it. If it's anything else, it's either moderation or don't eat it. And the big thing that I think separates um, a Paleolithic mindset from a diet like Atkins or the protein power plants and the Dr.'s Eads or Greg Ellis' stuff with the low-carb lifestyle is that in those instances, people always gravitate toward how do I make bread that's low carb how do i make pancakes that are low carb etc where with paleo we just simply say there's certain things we don't eat and the reality is even though people talk about how boring and bland it must be and oh my god you're giving up so much you're really looking at five main things that go away white potatoes wheat soy corn and 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 um and rice um that's it that's it white potatoes wheat Soy, corn, rice. And I consider corn, as long as it's whole grain, heirloom-style corn, eat in moderation. I think that man's history with corn is far more beneficial than his history with wheat. I really do. Now, modern corn, totally different scenario. But that that's my thoughts. And I know I went long on paleo today, but I had so many questions come up. And so many misconceptions. You can't have cheese. I'm not giving up my cheese. You don't have to give up your cheese. 
It's okay. Just please understand with any subject, including anything I talk about, I am not your guru. The guy that wrote the book that you thought was fabulous and changed your life, he's still not your guru. He's just changed certain things about the way you think, and it's up to you to take from there and add to it and think for yourself. Let's take another one. All right, next up I want to talk about some cool things that are going to be going on um, with me in the Survival Podcast and some appearances. Uh, number one, I'll remind everybody uh, that I will be appearing at the Self-Reliance Expo in Denver in October. I believe it's the weekend of the 4th and the 5th or something like that. Anyway, it's, it's on my appearances page so that you can go there and, and, and learn more about it. Uh, so you can go to the Survival Podcast and, and click on the appearances page and, and get all the information you want on the Denver Expo, October 4th and 5th. Um, but there's a big, big deal coming up that uh, I think is going to be one of the most amazing conferences ever put together. For those of you that are interested in learning more about permaculture and what it can do for the world and what it can do for our own self-sufficiency in our own community. There is a conference that I've been asked to speak at. In, uh, in California, March 13th through 16th, 2014. And I'm kind of a little leery. I love to speak, but the names of the people that will be speaking there as well are people like Toby Hemingway, Jeff Lawton, Alan Savory, Mark Shepard, Greg Judy, and Joel Salatin. And to be put alongside people like Dr. Elaine Ingram, etc., I, I just... It, it's very hard for me to accept that they want me to speak at this thing with, with that type of, uh, of, of cadre of speakers. I, I'd be happy just to go listen to these people and interact with them. My good buddy Paul Wheaton will be speaking there as well. This is called Permaculture Voices. And I haven't really talked about it a lot yet, but I'm, I'm doing that now. And I, I want you guys to get by their website today. Again, it's permaculturevoices.com. And uh, look at the speakers that are going to be speaking. Click on all speakers, you'll see me. I'm not a keynote, and I don't think I need to be keynoting at, at something like this. But uh, it's just an incredible group of people. And uh, it's going to be an incredible experience beyond just the speakers, but all of the people that will be there that you can interact with and, uh, and, and, and have conversations with. I'm looking very much to being able to speak to Greg Judy face-to-face uh, -face and tell him what a fan I am of the work he's done with uh, Mob Grazing. Uh, Mark Shepard. I've wanted to meet Mark for a long time. I've tried to get him on the show. Maybe after I meet him in person and shake his hand, I'll be able to uh, to do that. But I want to meet all of you guys as well. And what I'm going to be speaking about uh, permaculture voices, because I don't feel that I can bring anything um, with this group of people that won't be said about technique. I want to talk about taking permaculture to the mainstream, and I want to talk about making money with it. And I am going to work really hard with the audience that I'll have there. Many of the died in the wool, uh, you know, everything should be free types might be there uh, to understand why we can't make permaculture something that doesn't produce a profit. Uh, because I don't think that's a good thing. I think if you have the greatest thing in the world, that it should be profitable. That doesn't mean, and, and I think people have a hard time understanding that profit doesn't mean victimize. Uh, for instance, I have my, my member support brigade. I don't feel that anybody that's paying me to be a member of the support brigade is being victimized in any way. I feel I bring you far more value than I charge. And if you choose not to use the value because you just want the affinity and you make that choice, that's your choice. But somebody that's actually buying the kind of things that we get discounts for you on there, there's no case that can be made for that that thing doesn't pay for itself like a hundred times over. So you can make a profit and really care about your customer and go out of your way to make sure you're serving them beyond even what they're asking for. 
And, and that's what we can do with permaculture. So I want to talk about how do we get people that don't even know what the word is and don't care about it to care about it and implement it in their lives. And I want to talk about incrementalism with, with this presentation as well. In other words, how do we get some people who are never going to fully adopt a lifestyle to at least start growing some of their own food, buy from local producers, and care about what they're producing, and think a little bit differently about how they care for their own piece of land, even if it's a tenth of an acre in the city. To just think that maybe the ethics aren't a bad idea after all. And actually teach the, the way you could sell permaculture as a permaculture landscaper or something like that is when we come in and, and redo your property, we're going to make sure we do three things really well. We're going to make sure that we don't do any harm to your land whatsoever or any harm to your neighbor's land. We're going to make sure that everything we do and everything we use will never harm you, your children, or your neighbors, not just their land. But we'll make sure nothing hurts people here either. And then we'll make sure that all of the things that this system produces can be harnessed and returned back to it to lower your cost of maintaining it. Folks, that's the three freaking ethics if you don't get it, right? And I think that that's an incredible sales message that's good for the customer and good for the provider. So that's the type of thing I'm going to be talking about, permaculture voices, and man, would I love to see some of you guys there. Uh, it's not cheap, but I think it is, honestly. Um, I think it's 600 bucks or 700 bucks um, for the, the whole conference. It's several days, and again, um, you know, Michael Pollan, Joel Salton, Jeff Lawton, Paul Wheaton, Alan Savory, Elaine Egram, Toby Hemingway, me, right? Mark Severn, I mean, that's to be able, it's 695 bucks. For four days and over 50 workshops, and if you bring a friend, you can get the second ticket for uh, for $5.95. So $6.95 each, or you want to buy two tickets, you can get one for $6.95, one for $5.95. And that means, yes, some of you can partner up. I would say it's a great idea for you guys to go into the Permaculture Forum on the TSP community and say, hey, would you like to split the savings with me? And I think it makes sense for people to, you know, you're going to need a hotel room or anything to kind of group up and share share resources here. And uh, get to know people and make this, you know, not just a permaculture event, but a TSP event. Uh, I would think it would be awesome. I, I think it would be really awesome if, like, they're limiting this to 600 people. If, like, 100 or, or so people that came to it were survivalists. Because, folks, that changes the dynamics at a permaculture workshop. And let me tell you something about most of the hippies and what have you that are in permaculture. They only think they don't like you. When they meet you. It's an incredible merging of cultures. It's awesome. It's so awesome. And I think the other thing you'll find is many of the self-described hippies uh, in permaculture, when you talk to them, they're not what you think of when you think of hippie. I've told quite a few people in that that they're safe self-labeling themselves a hippie after I talk about You're not a hippie. You need a new word for what. If you want to call yourself something, you're not really what people think of when they hear the word hippie. Uh So that's, that's just something else, another dynamic that I wanted to point out. But I would, I would love to see some of you guys at Permaculture Voices. Another option, though, I did a post on Sunday about this. I'm kind of ramping up what we're going to be doing here at the Homestead. And I have a number of workshops coming up, and I'm still planning some of them, but uh, some I'm pretty set on and some are completely set, and others were kind of figuring it out. So let me tell you a little bit about what you're going to be able to come to Jack's place and do. My workshops generally run two to four days, and they generally run somewhere between $250 and $350. Something that's more involved might have to be a little bit more. Um, I'll tell you about one of those types of things here in, in a bit. But what I do that I've been to a lot of permaculture events, and 
you know, I'm not putting anybody down or anything, but generally speaking, you live on granola and tabbouleh and rice and uh, vegetables. And that's hard when you're on paleo. But it's also, I mean, you, you hear a lot of people, nobody wants to say anything bad, but you hear a lot of people going, man, I need some protein. I'm hungry, right? Uh, and it's because they're trying to keep costs down. And my belief is when you're providing a service, you charge what you need to and you deliver, right? So when you come to my permaculture workshops, you're going to be sitting down with a table full of freaking beef or sausage or pork. I mean, I'm talking about getting some free-range briskets, new sidebox smoker fired up, and throw two briskets down. And that'll feed 20 people quite well. And maybe while I'm smoking them, I smoke a couple of pork shoulders uh, because that'll feed people the next day. And, you know, it's one day of cooking. So you're going to get fed. Um, generally speaking, we have quite a bit of adult beverages around beer. We try to minimize any consumption of hard alcohol. But beer, a little bit of wine, playing pool, playing darts, having a good time, doing some barter blankets, and seeds exchanges. And I got some great tips from my first group, and they said, well, why don't you, once you have everybody booked, create an email list for people before we the event so they can start hooking up with each other. Great, we're going to do that this time around. So we're really not doing permaculture. Just some of what we're learning is permaculture stuff. What we're doing is community building and skill share and resource share, and that's very, very cool. On that note, the uh, week it looks like it's going to be uh, October of 14th, the week of October 14th, and it's probably going to run the 17th to the 20th uh, for the urban workshop. Now, I want to be clear. I've talked about doing like an urban specialization uh, for people with business aptitude, parts of it and all, and putting that together with Jeff. We want to do that. Jeff and I are still discussing the idea and, and putting that together in a very cool way. That's not what this is. This is just how to design an urban space. And when I say urban, I mean urban or suburban, right? So small space design. Um, we're going to probably limit that to 24 people, and I probably already have 20 people on the waiting list. If you want to get on the waiting list for that, send me an email, jack at the survival podcast.com, put urban permaculture workshop in the subject line, and I'll put you into the folder. And when I start taking reservations, what I'm going to do is I'm going to email the first 10 people on the list before I put it out publicly. Then I'm going to email the next 10 people like 12 hours later. Then I'm going to email the next 10 people like 12, and you know, probably by then it'll go public. And that way, everybody that's on the list will get a chance to register uh, and, and pay their, their deposit before it goes public. And these events feel, feel fast, so I'll be building other uh, lists for other events. And, guys, i got to tell you, um, half the people on the waiting list were people that came to the first one, and they want to come back. And I think it's not just the knowledge. They want the experience again. It's so amazing when you get you know, 15, 20 TSPers together actually doing something together is pretty awesome. So the Urban Garden Workshop is going to be design. We're not going to be putting shovels in the ground except maybe to look at what kind of soil we're talking about. We're going to be drawing designs and figuring out exact and, and like critique it and then do it again and then critique it and do it again and come up with a final design, a master plan for the space. It's going to be very cool. But I've also been, you know, I got an intern now named Josiah Wallingford. I think his his blog will be ready for release this week. He's out right now, I think, uh, leveling some bricks so we can put up this new water tank and get this water catchment system in that will be part of this urban garden workshop. Um, he's a really cool guy, and one of the parts, uh, things I put together that I wanted him to do while he was here, because I haven't gotten to it, is build a Stephen Harris-style battery backup system for my Ford F-350 truck. Uh, you know, a toolbox, uh, batteries in there. And I want to go to four batteries, not just two. I want to do everything but the solar piece because the solar piece is an add-on if you want to do it. And I think the truck produces plenty of power. 
and you could always add solar to it later. Well, I look at that and I go, you know what, maybe that's an opportunity. Maybe that's something people, even though there's a video by Steve of how to do that, maybe people would want to come learn and actually build one. And my thought is, you know, not everybody could do this, but a couple people that wanted to that would be in attendance, you, you know, get their shopping list together, buy all the parts so you have every part you need, and bring your vehicle, and we could have maybe my vehicle and two others, so we have three places that people are working on the projects at the same time, and build three of them. I have a three-bay garage, and if it rains, we can pull all three into a bay, and just move the vehicles out in the evening so that we have places to play pool and hang out. I think that would be a cool one. I can teach that, or I can bring Steve in to teach it. If I bring Steve in to teach it, I'm going to have to share the profit with him, and that's only right and fair, and I would, and I have to pay to bring him down here. I think it's only fair that his flight be covered, uh, and we'd probably give him a room to stay in here, and I'm happy to do that, but it's, you know, it's going to cost a little more. I want it, and I have a post out on all of this, uh, and I want as many comments as I can about what workshops you would come to. Please don't say, I think they're all cool, and I'm going to come to all of them, and you know you're not, okay? Uh, the next one is, I want to do a workshop, and this is definitely going to happen, this one. Aquaponics with one moving part. A student from San Antonio at our first event has a great way to do aquaponics. And I'm going to bring him up as an instructor. And this system, the siphon, goes in one tank. And then the grow beds, the water just flows through them. So there's not a, there's not a siphon in every tank. And the siphon has no, it's not like a bell siphon. It doesn't move. And if it's not, if it's not, if you're not getting enough water, you make a pipe longer. If you're getting too much water, you make a pipe shorter. And since nothing moves, it's impossible for the system to fail. There's one moving part in the entire system. It's the pump that brings the water from the lowest point in the system to the highest point in the system. With a little bit of redundancy, you have a fail-proof aquaponic system. We're going to build that system this fall that will go after the urban permaculture workshop because we were going to combine them together, and Nick and I talked about it. It just seems like too much for one event. Um, the next one is we're going to probably do sometime this winter what we're going to call a fun and skills workshop. Uh, we're not sure exactly what we're going to do yet, but this would be like just a whole bunch of stuff over a few days just to have fun. Uh, and learn, too. We'll make some meals in a jar with a dry canner. So we have the awesome vacuum canner. We have a guy that built one of his own, so we'd have at least two of them here. We could probably, I bet somebody else coming would have one, so we could get a bunch of those going at the same time. As part of the, the, the cost coming, Dorothy and I would provide, you know, freeze-dried stuff, mountain house-type stuff, providing pantry stuff. And we'd come up with two or three recipes, and everybody would make a couple, three meals in a jar using the dry canner, and we could all learn from that experience. Um, and, and then we would probably do an actual canning class, maybe do a bunch of tomatoes or something that everybody would really like, and then everybody could take home a can or two of tomatoes. Um, we'd probably brew some beer, and you probably wouldn't take beer home, but you definitely would drink some because we'll have our keg system built by then, and we'll be home brewing like crazy. So we'll learn how to brew, we'll sample home brew, uh, things like that. And I'm sure if we do that, some of the people coming will be brewers and maybe bring some of their home brew to share with the group. Um, we'll probably do some rocket stove cooking while you guys are here. I've got two rocket stoves, one Steve Harris sent me, the other one, I, I, the EcoZoom Versa that I really like, so we could play around with the rocket stoves, maybe do some solar cooking, assuming the sun shines. Um, and this would probably be in early December, so right before we get into the Christmas holidays, I think it would be a good time to do this. Uh, and we would do this as well. If you're coming from out of town you're not driving, we would know in advance, we would already figure out how many things you could take home with you in advance, and we'll have a pre-labeled shipping box for you 
Uh, it will just build into the cost, and you put all your stuff in there and close it up, and we'll just drop it off and mail it to you. So that way, all this stuff that we're talking about taking home, you wouldn't have to worry about on an airplane or something if you were traveling in. I think that's a cool way to do it. The last one, and it might get combined with the Fun and Skills Workshop, because it's really only probably a half day to do the whole thing, is called Killing and Cleaning Chickens 101. Uh, I just ordered 50 Red Ranger birds, so they'll be ready about the end of the year. And my thought is this. Everybody can come that wants to come. Well, up to probably 25 people. And when you get here, I'm going to give you a chicken while it's alive. It is your chicken. And then during the workshop, you will kill and process with help two chickens. And one will be a chicken that's for my homestead that we will, you know, either cut up and piece out or put whole into a freezer Uh, and then the other chicken, since it was yours before you killed it, is yours to do anything you want with. Cook it while you're here, pack it in a cooler and take it home, give it to a friend, do whatever you want. The thing is, I'm not selling you a chicken, so the FDA can go shove their heads up their butts, which is what they're really good at. It's your chicken. You do what you want to with it. If you say, well, I'm traveling from out of state, and I don't want to deal with you know, sending home a frozen chicken or whatever, I don't want my chicken, you can just give it back to me. I'll be happy to take it. But everybody that wants to will leave with a chicken they've processed themselves. I've never seen that done before. What I've seen done is when people run a workshop on killing chickens, they use the students to do all the work for them. I'm going to use the students to do half the work for me, and the other half to get to use for yourself, and you'll learn how to do it. I think that might really work well combined with the fun and skills workshop. And maybe even our canning would be, maybe we could can some chicken. I don't know. Or make some chicken soup and can that. Who knows? Uh, but we'll look at that as we get down. I'd love to hear from you guys about these workshops. And I'd love to hear from you, what do you want me to do? You know, What else do you want me to do? What do you? If I set up a workshop that you would be like, I don't care, I'm going to Texas, I'm going to be there, I'm going to commune with other TSP people, what would that workshop be? What would you want to learn how to do that we don't have in one of those? Uh, let me know. There's also some things we're thinking about doing just for fun as TSP events, but not here. One is, and I'm not sure yet if I'm going to do this, but I'm thinking about getting in touch with a ranch or something like that that does hog hunts or something that are affordable and setting up a TSP hunt. That might be like in the, the midwinter period, like February or something like that. Um, where it would just be, you know, maybe 10, 15 people. Most of those places, that's about all they can handle. And everybody would go out and kill something and sit around campfires and, and, and hunt during the day and, and bullshit at night. And I think that would be fun. The other thing I've kicked around for years, and I think I'm definitely going to get in touch with these people and do this. And I think these guys can accommodate on some of their boats 30, 40 people. And if we did it far enough in advance, maybe we could be, the whole boat would be TSPers. It's a company called Dolphin Docks out of Port Aransas, Texas, that do offshore fishing trips. These are what's called a head boat. They're a great big boat, 30, 40, 50 people on them, and they go way offshore like you don't see shore anymore. And they do trips that are 24-hour trips, so you leave 7 in the morning, come back 7 in the morning. They do 40-hour trips. Now, that's not a week. It's 40 hours, which is a little less than two days, and they do 80-hour trips. And the longer the trip, the more days you're out, the more fish you have on your license, and the more you can take home. And they do everything from sharks to snapper and, and just about anything else in between. Every feedback thing that I've heard about them has been beautiful. It's not you always catch a bunch of fish because it's fishing, uh, not catching. Uh, but generally, they do very well. You can check out their website. It's DolphinDocs.com. And what I'm thinking about doing is setting up with them a date and saying, hey, can you guys hold that one trip on that one boat and give us maybe a month to see if we can fill it for you? And we'll go far enough out that maybe they would be willing to do that. And 
I'm not going to make nothing on that. I mean, I'm not even going to say, hey, give me my you know, seat on the boat for free. Uh, that's just going to be, hey, I want to set this up and do this with TSP members. So I'd like to hear from you guys about any of that stuff. And I want to start doing more and more things like this. I want more people getting together, sharing knowledge, sharing skills, and developing relationships. I can tell you the people that came to our first event, a lot of them are still talking to each other, and I'm still talking to them. And I have friends now that were always friends over the airways, but I didn't know them personally. I'd never shook their hands. And um, I can just say this. it's You guys are awesome. Seriously. TSP is an incredibly special group of people. I am blown away every time we meet with you guys. I've met so many of you. I've met, you know, probably two, three thousand people face to face and, and, and shook your hand and heard your name. And guys, I'm not as brilliant as some of you guys think I am. I can't remember everybody's name. And there will be times when you'll come to me like, I met you here. And I'll be like, oh, I'm sorry, man. Or I'll be like, oh, I remember you, but I don't remember any details. And I'll be honest whether I do or not. And, and don't be insulted by that. It's just a, a, there's only room for so many names and faces in my head. And I'm not good with names to begin with. But every person I've met has been amazing. I've almost, you know, I've met, you know, every event. Let's be honest. Every, Des Moines, you're the exception. There wasn't one there. Every expo I've ever done, and that's just not just PSP. This is when I used to do it in tech and all. There's always that one guy. And if you guys are familiar with Seinfeld, that one guy is usually a close talker and a sidler. You're not familiar with uh, Seinfeld. The close talker is a guy that, like, doesn't understand personal space, and he gets way up in your face like this, and he's talking to you. And a sidler is a close talker that when you you know start moving sideways to break that and kind of, dude, you're too close, he just kind of shovels along like a hermit crab sideways and stays with you. Um, there's that one guy, and at TSP, or not really TSP events, but but survival-themed events, he's the guy that's like, okay, you, you really do know what's going on, don't you? You know about the the, the, the FEMA camps or the, you know, the, the, the collapse is going to happen tomorrow or whatever. Like some, like he thinks I'm holding back and he wants to know or they want to tell you why they know it's going to happen and it's that one wingnut, right? Um, there's usually one but only one. And then there's thousands of people that are you guys. You're just amazing. And the events I want to do are so that you guys can get together with each other and see how awesome you guys really are. Because I don't think most of you guys know. I think it's 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 awesome. You All of a sudden you have like 20 people camping in your backyard. And a day later, they're talking to each other like they've known themselves their whole lives. That's what we're trying to put together. And there was some ugliness at the beginning of today's show. And guys, I want to finish up with a little bit more on that. And it, it's from a totally different angle. On the silver thing... This has been so energy-sucking. If Rob wasn't a friend of five years who's kept every bit of his word to me, at this point, even if I you know, was still completely siding with him, I would just say, you know what, dude, I just, I just can't do this anymore. I would walk. I wouldn't be malicious or, or like, you know, this guy sucks. I would just say, you know what, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to tell people they can still do business with you, but I'm taking myself out of it, and I'm done. Because it's been very, very energy-sucking. It really has. And the reason that's a problem is because of what I just said before this. You guys are more important to me than any of this crap. See, Rob and Dave are in a fight for their life. Chris is in a fight for his ego. I'm stuck in the middle with this. And it sucks. The only thing I've cared about from the very beginning is making sure you guys are taken care of and I do all I can to give you what you want from me. And that's it. 
And I hope that is evident. I hope the years we've spent together as you've watched this thing develop make you understand I didn't do this so I could sucker people into buying silver. Right? If I wanted to sucker people into buying silver, I would have been in the silver business a long time ago. It's a pain in the ass. It's low margin. And the more I see of it, the dirtier it seems to be. And I'm not talking about Rob and Chris and Republican. I'm talking about everybody. I've actually gotten a look at the underbelly of the metals market. And I've seen shit, like because somebody becomes successful, if they have a mutual supplier with somebody else, a phone call be made and saying, you know, we don't want to supply you anymore. We just don't want to do business. But we're paying you. No, I don't, I don't, we just don't want to do business with you anymore. And you find out it's because somebody was, I mean, it's just a dirty business. And it's sad because I think we need it. I think we need silver in our lives right now to protect our wealth. But uh, I think what we need more of than we need silver or gold or any commodity is we need each other. We need each other. We need to stick together. And hopefully it's really evident how much I stick with you guys and how well I stand by a partner and a friend. Because if it wasn't Rob... If it was anybody else I can think of that would be in that world, it probably wouldn't be worth it by now. In fact, it probably wouldn't have been worth it for this long. All I can say about Rob, once again, every single promise, every single commitment that he's ever made to me has been fulfilled. And if I wanted to make a list of people that didn't fit that description, it would be quite long. And that buys loyalty from me. And hopefully... It buys loyalty from you guys as well. With that, I want to wrap up. And again, I want to really encourage some of you guys to try to get to one of our upcoming events, uh, whatever one's best for you. And let me know. Let me know if there's something you want us to put together that's not on the, the pending list right now. And we'll see where we can fit it in. But at this point, it's probably in the next year. Uh, last on the events thing, a lot of questions about when is Jeff coming? When is Jeff coming? My guess is it's going to be beginning of April. He's speaking at this conference, and it would just make sense then, but I don't have a firm commitment him on, on date yet, and i got to get that locked down, and I'll be working on that in the next couple of weeks. So the Jeff Lawton thing uh, is going to happen as well. The, le- the waiting list on that so long, if you're not on it yet, I really don't know that it's worth being added. I'll add you uh, if you ask me to, but it's, uh, it's close to 100 people, and we're probably going to take two dozen. So uh, uh, we'll get to you guys on, on when that's going to be. I do have some other Earthwork workshops that I'm working to put together uh, with Nick Bertner and some folks that I'm going to put him in touch with. And that might be something that we can do uh, for people that can't do the Jeff thing, either to time considerations or just limits. Uh, one in Oklahoma and one in Louisiana, I think, are both going to happen eventually. And we'll try to make sure that whatever you guys want to learn, I'll try to facilitate an environment where you can learn that. Uh, in most instances, I'll be there. Some I won't. But my concern is you're learning. And uh, are you served well? With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. In our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show.
somebody up there cares They're leaving for today Shut